Hello, and welcome to Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. My name is Kristen Gutu, and today's guest is Patrick K. Lin, an attorney and researcher focused on AI, privacy, and technology regulation. He is the author of Machine See, Machine Do, a book that explores the ways public institutions use technology to surveil, police, and make decisions about the public as well as the historical biases that impact that technology. Patrick has extensive experience in litigation and policy, having worked with the ACLU, FTC, EFF, and other organizations that advocate for digital rights and social justice. He is passionate about addressing the ethical and legal challenges posed by emerging technologies, especially in the areas of surveillance, algorithmic bias, and data privacy. He has published multiple articles and papers on topics such as facial recognition, data protection, and copyright law. So I am very excited to hear his thoughts today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Before I dive into my questions, is there anything else you want to say about yourself, Patrick, and how you ended up on this career trajectory? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this topic and then to have this conversation with you. But no, that was uh, a really lovely introduction. From my perspective, you know, with respect to my current career trajectory, I, I've always wanted to be a lawyer for as long as I can remember. That's sort of the, the career that I've really carved out for myself. But it was really an undergrad internship that I had with the Legal Aid Society that crystallized it for me. When I was an undergrad, I interned for their DNA unit, where I did a lot of research on predictive policing, risk assessment algorithms. And at one point, sort of the highlight of that, of that internship was I, along with a, a team of interns and, and attorneys, we reverse engineered the forensic statistical tool, which is a software the New York City office chief medical examiner used to analyze DNA evidence. And we, we showed that there was you know, questionable statistical methods being used uh, and bias in the way that the DNA was being tested and the analysis process itself. And that was really a turning point for me as I realized, oh, you know, this technology that I kind of at that point viewed as quite neutral and was doing really great things like exonerating people who've been wrongfully convicted also has this really nefarious side, sometimes used deliberately, sometimes without sort of critical thinking. And it has this really negative and, and you know, life or death impact on people. So that's what really prompted me to sort of pursue this, this career path. And the rest is kind of history, I guess. And it's interesting you make that remark, because one of my follow-up questions was going to ask about how in your book, you start by referencing Robert Moses, who I will in a bit ask you to give a little backstory on. And you finish your book by saying, quote, if we are not willing to reflect on the effects of our history, then our technology will simply continue to mirror our past mistakes, end quote. So you already gave an example of this, but I'm curious to hear from your overall experience how you're seeing this bias seep into technology and transgress from a data perspective and in-person landscape into the digital landscape. So how is this bias being codified from your experience? Yeah, absolutely. And so, no, I I, uh, I definitely 
catch a lot of people off guard with that Robert Moses story right off the bat. I think a lot of people, they, they look back at the cover and they think, oh, am I, am I reading the wrong book here? You know, why is he suddenly talking about Robert Moses? But just a little bit of uh, background there, he's probably considered, you know, to be the person who has like the most influence in shaping the layout and infrastructure of New York City, especially as we know it today. He built hundreds of miles of road and many of New York's most famous landmarks like the Central Park Zoo, the UN headquarters, Lincoln Center. Those are all things that he built. But all we see are sort of these like beautiful, you know, buildings and and this, you know, the, these long stretches of road and parks and whatever. But to sort of make these grand scale urban developments possible, Robert Moses evicted, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, most of whom were black, brown and poor people. And so the displacement of those people further segregated the city, which also continues to have ripple effects today. But the interesting thing is, you know, you asked about sort of how those biases get codified. And Robert Moses himself, he he has been credited with saying legislation can always be changed, but it's very hard to tear down a bridge once it's built up. And so I really want to start with this background on Robert Moses, because I I really did for two reasons. First, it's to prime the readers to think about the the historical context, right? Because, you know, objects or, or concepts that we may think of as, you know, really neutral or as, you know, even fair or objective, right? They carry with them a history. And sometimes that history itself is is biased or, um, you know, due to human behavior, we've created a history that is biased and that carries on to these things that we've built today. Um, such as the buildings and infrastructure and development that Robert Moses was responsible for. But second, it's also reminding readers that while individuals like Robert Moses hold a lot of power and, and influence, they're just, they're just one person, right? Like they are a single operator in a much larger system. And so a lot of other things like our institutions, our government, our businesses, our banks, these all also have to be on board or at the very least kind of complicit in these things happening, right? There is sort of this collective disregard for people who've historically been ignored, marginalized, and it takes more than just one person for that to happen. And so I also want to remind readers that history is important, but also our institutions, right? It's easy to sort of point at one person and say they're responsible for all of this, but a lot of other things kind of have to line up and we play a role in that as well. And so that's sort of how I see, you know, it's beyond just the law, right? The law plays a really, I think, important part. I think I'd be wrong to say otherwise, you know, it's having studied law and everything, but I think also there's so many tangible things, like the way we design things, the way we develop things, though, you know, those also have a really important impact and those in, in their own way codify technology and codify our history as well. You mentioned through Robert Moses's actions who he displaced, and you mentioned that it was Black and brown people and that it was poor people. And you also mentioned how technology is often tested out in public and that, quote, the government's use of surveillance technology frequently has a disproportionate impact on immigrant communities. So again, we see this trend of who's being affected offline tends to be the same types of people being targeted online. So can you touch a little on how we target both poor communities, but also Black and brown communities through the initial deployment of some technologies? Yeah, you know, I think primarily of surveillance technologies, right? We don't often hear about, you know, shot spotter, you know, audio surveillance systems being set up in really wealthy neighborhoods. Right. They're often set up in urban centers, in neighborhoods that are predominantly communities of, of color. And 
it's interesting sort of connecting that with the history too, right? Because we think, oh, you know, with predictive policing, for example, we don't often question the way the model works. We say, oh, well, the, the computer's telling, you know, police officers to go to, you know, XYZ neighborhoods, and that's where they will go. That's what the computer says. It's predicted with a, you know, a bunch of different variables, why police officers should allocate their resources to those areas. But when we look under the hood, we see, well, they're basing this decision off of things like arrest data, right? And so you could say, you know, with a one-to-one correlation where arrest data is happening, that's where police should be going to make sure that they're stopping crime. But as we know, arrest doesn't necessitate that a crime has occurred, right? And we know that throughout history in, in the U.S., Black and brown neighborhoods, poor neighborhoods have been policed significantly more than white and wealthy neighborhoods. And so arrests happen a lot more frequently there. And so when we don't question that history, that repeats itself. If there's there's this feedback loop effect where if we don't properly interrogate why the computer or the machine is saying what it's saying, we're, we're kind of just following history's footsteps and we're just repeating things over and over again. And I, I think surveillance technology really finds a way to only impact poor people and, and people of color as a result. And then it's this continuing feedback loop where it's biased to begin with because of the decision of where to implement. And then the criminal trial continues to be biased. So can you then discuss the lack of opaqueness in the criminal trial and how algorithms are used to influence judges and then how judges essentially execute less critical thinking and trust their inherent biases and the validation of the algorithm? Absolutely. And that's that's such a tricky thing, too, because, yes, you know, algorithms are used in almost every state in the U.S. to make decisions about whether someone should be able to go home before the trial starts or how long their sentence should be whether there should be an early release for them once they've actually gone to prison. And while all of these algorithms by law are not allowed to explicitly consider race, a lot of factors like income level, like socioeconomic status, even your zip code, family history, those are all things that are proxies for race. And if we think about how history has impacted different groups of people and how those different measures or or variables that are being used, we start to see there's a more complete picture. And when when we look at it, we might not include race explicitly, but it's being factored in anyway. But with respect to judges, it's tricky because judges themselves hold their own biases too. And they will often make decisions that further their own agendas as well. And it's it can be difficult to kind of parse out where the algorithm begins and where the judge's own human biases kind of start. But the, the difficult part with using an algorithm in those judicial decisions in criminal trials is it also kind of been, can be used to absolve judges to a degree too. Judges can kind of point to an algorithm and say, well, the algorithm told me that there's a certain percentage chance that this criminal defendant is likely to recommit the crime or that the recidivism algorithm told me this. And so I made my decision based on that. And so again, it kind of removes that human accountability from the process too. So I think that's another layer that is difficult to to address and, and unpack. In your book, you mention how overrepresentation is often an indicator of discriminatory purposes. And though I've noticed that, I never quite put that together. So can you talk about the skewness of overrepresentation and how that affects models' outputs, especially from the legal perspective? 
Yeah, you know, the over-representation part is, is really interesting because we think about how data sets should be representative. They should be representative of the communities that they're impacting, but especially in the criminal legal system and in criminal applications, data sets really skew to over-represent Black and brown people, right? And again, I think that goes back to how arrest data underscores that, right? Black and brown people are over-represented in the criminal legal system because throughout the civil rights movement, and long before that, and also when you account for the war on drugs in the U.S., Black and brown communities have been consistently targeted. People have been arrested time and time again, and communities have been targeted. When that happens, you have data that overrepresents those groups of people. And that becomes an issue because when you want to make decisions about white criminal defendants and defendants who are people of color, there's a skew as well. And so as, we, as we've seen, with, for example, um, I talk a great deal about Compass in, in my book. That's a recidivism and risk assessment algorithm. It will look at two applicants or, or two uh, candidates, one white, one black, and their crimes could be very similar. But a white individual will often score lower on their risk score. And then a black applicant will often score higher. And part of that is informed by overrepresentation of black people in a lot of these data sets. And, and that influences the way the model operates. And again, it's interesting because I always hear about Compass, but I think your book was the first time I saw the actual formula for Compass and the biases and the weights. And so you're talking about proxies that are being taken to be racist. But then we see that they're also classist in that Compass considered the education level, which might not be of equal opportunity to everyone. It considered the person's age, which again, going back to your comment, where are we placing this surveillance? If it's in certain communities, then we will witness crime of people at younger ages, not because that's happening only in those communities, but because we're looking for that in those communities. And so again, it's just another layer of this bias. And I keep bringing it back to the predictive policing aspect. And so I think there's a stigma that there is only bias in this government perspective or in the police perspective. But you mentioned a few examples of the biases and the predatory harms, maybe is the better word, that Palantir, The Ring, and ShotSpotter have been influencing. So do you want to talk about any of those examples and their parts in creating unbalanced outcomes for consumers? Yeah, no, absolutely. The the ShotSpotter example, I think, is... Um... That has been around for some time, I would say probably the late 2000s, early 2010s, and has continued to be really prevalent. New York has continued to install more and more of them, for example. But just to give a little bit of background, ShotSpotter is an audio surveillance system. So it uses audio sensors placed throughout different neighborhoods, and they're supposed to send a gunshot alerts to police. You know, a gunshot will be heard and it's supposed to triangulate sort of where the exact location or down to the block of where the gunshot was heard or, or where it originated. But the issue with a tool like that is the sensors record everything 24-7. And last I checked, they store that recording for up to three days. And so what happens when an argument is recorded by shot spotter sensors and is used as evidence to prosecute someone? That's actually what happened in a Massachusetts criminal case several years ago, where prosecutors were able to get a hold of this recording because it's ultimately sent to the police department. 
And they were able to use it to show that someone was in a heated argument and allegedly attacked someone as a result of that argument. But when criminal defense attorneys said, well, you know, you recorded this audio, this conversation, supposedly your privacy policy says that it doesn't do that, that it only records gunshots. So we want to subpoena the company that created ShotSpotter and we want to better understand and gain access to how it records voices and whether that's something that it's even supposed to be doing. And ShotSpotter was able to just say, nope, we can't do that. It's a trade secret. It's protected by IP law. We cannot provide that to you. And the defense attorneys just had to go forward and not have that really, I think, important piece of evidence to represent their client. And the judge also sided with ShotSpotter in that case. And so it's really interesting to kind of see how, you know, the Constitution protects us from the government, right, against the police. And I will say to varying degrees of success or failure, right? But it doesn't do anything to protect us from private corporations and companies and developers. And so that's something I try to get at in the book, too, is that the more and more entangled police departments and the government is with the tech industry, right? Government contracts are often considered really lucrative. And so a lot of tech industry companies will produce and create products for the government. And when individual citizens or civilians say, hey, I want to better understand how this technology works, there's no transparency. There's no accountability at all. And, you know, I think about even, you know, you had mentioned the Amazon Ring cameras. That was something that I was not really aware of until I started researching for my book. And I think currently one out of every five U.S. households have either a U.S. Ring camera or like a Google Nest camera, but some sort of like video camera system. And Amazon in particular has been really, really active with contracting with police departments and saying, hey, if you are investigating a crime in an area without the consent of the person who installed the camera on their property, um, because we own the recording, it's stored in our cloud, we will provide that to you. And when you purchase that product and you install it on your front door, you have no way of opting out. In order to use the technology, you have to just sort of be okay with it. And now all of a sudden, you've installed a security system, and it can be used to arrest your neighbors. It can be used to surveil um, your neighborhoods. And again, if the police did that, if the police installed cameras on your property, that's illegal. That's something that's protected by the Constitution. The police cannot do that. But because you have freely install these cameras and Amazon is its own, you know, corporation, it's a company, it's not a government entity, there's really no recourse for you. And so it's been really interesting and, and really quite frightening to sort of see that trend of private and public being entangled in this way and how they're, the law hasn't really kept up with how we address situations like that. That's so scary to think about. And do you think about who's again, being mostly affected. And I'm thinking of the camera's quality and all these misidentifications with black and brown people for crimes that they have not committed. And it makes me think of the fact that Kodak, when they first came out a few decades in, they didn't address the fact that black and brown people photograph terribly until furniture stores started complaining that they couldn't take quality photos of their black, brown, mahogany furniture. And so that's when Kodak, for financial incentives, perfected the quality of their camera. And I'm thinking of 
okay, does Amazon or the Ring have any incentive to make their camera higher quality? Do we want that? But then again, who's being most impacted by the downside when someone is impacted? And so I want to mention another interesting fact I came across that I wasn't too aware of before reading your book, and that's the mention of ALPRs, if you can get into what that is, and also if you can talk about how that data can be used. Because again, I was shocked to find that the government can use this database of license plates and see where people are driving whether that is immigration clinics or Planned Parenthood or gun shops. And again, who are they actually surveilling? Are they surveilling the people that drive to gun shops with the same eye that they're surveilling people that are going to Planned Parenthood in states that are trying to ban abortion? So I'm interested to hear your take on, again, ALPRs. Yeah, so... For some background, ALPRs are automated license plate readers. They're really widely used. They're everywhere. And they're high-speed, you know, computer-controlled camera systems that will attach to things like utility poles, street lights, traffic lights, highway overpasses. Police cars will often be equipped with them as well. But like the name kind of implies, they capture, you know, all license plate numbers that come into view and can even track down location, date, and time of where the photo was taken. The other layer of concern is that they often will capture actually the driver's face as well. But they have been used, you know, in conjunction with a lot of other tools, for example, in sort of the post-row being overturned to identify people who have traveled across state lines to get abortions in states where it's legal and to even track things like going to different abortion clinics or going to a pharmacy and even on protests, traveling to protests, they've been used to track when People go to mosques, for example, to determine uh, who in a community is Muslim. And it's just another sort of really frightening tool that's available to police to track where people are going. And the tricky part is that there have been a number of crimes or criminals that have been stopped or captured using ALPRs. And the danger is that we point to those benefits and we say, look, we couldn't have done that if it weren't for this technology. And that might be true, but we need to also account for the sometimes less obvious risks and harms that come with using it. And I think that's, you know, something I think about all the time is whenever a new technology is introduced, are we focused just on the potential benefits or are we also going to talk about the very real harms, the harms that have already been experienced and documented, or are we only focused on, oh, it could do this or one day it'll do all this. And I think ALPR is a great example of that where We might not be actively thinking about it, but if cameras are always watching where we're going, there's a real loss of privacy there. And I think privacy is is so valuable in how we conduct ourselves, especially in a democracy. And so that's something that I find is really concerning about LPRs, that they're they're everywhere and they're, they're tracking so much information. And again, I think, like you said, it's important to understand the benefits and appreciate the mysteries or crimes that are solved as a result, but again, at what expense? Do we really feel comfortable providing so much information to people that are looking after someone who just got an abortion because it was life-threatening for them? You know, how can we decide that they should be experiencing one outcome versus another? So we spoke about biases in 
many different regards. But again, in your book, I came across a few new surprises, a new few ways we can oppress people or take advantage of their data. And one of them was the way we use gen- or generative AI uses non-consensual pornography and other situations in that realm. So that's something I was very unaware about. Can you touch on that? And again, how do we address a situation like this with the way technology is running now? Yeah, <laughs> my book is definitely full of uh, surprises and and certainly the the bad kind, I think. And so, yeah, no, you know, Generative AI is kind of, I think a lot of the same concerns that I've had about AI used in policing and just the criminal legal system context overall, a lot of those same concerns carry over. A lot of what I write about with respect to generative AI relates to like image generators or art generators. And so, you know, stable diffusion where, you know, you type, you know, it's like a text to image model. The concern there again is what data is being used. In the same way that predictive policing tools rely on biased historical data, how that kind of, in a lot of ways, invalidates the effectiveness of the technology, you know, OpenAI, ChatGPT, and different generative AI tools, they are also trained on, on biased data sets. And the issue there is a little bit different because what they do is the databases that they rely on, they care about how much data is being used. And so they're just trying to swallow up as much data as they can. But in the process, they don't sift through and see when harmful data is being used, when, you know, non-consensual pornography is used, and and it has been used in a lot of these uh, image generator tools. And so what I think of as large-scale artificial intelligence open network, LAION, is sort of one of the most popular databases being used. And we know that the database itself contains hundreds of thousands of stolen pieces of artwork from people who never gave their consent for their work to be used in this way. It includes deepfakes, photoshopped, celebrity porn, sometimes even medical photos of people who might have like uploaded them sometimes to forums or often under the pretenses that it's anonymous or private to sometimes get advice um, and things like that. And even non-consensual pornography that's been posted on sort of, you know, quote unquote, you know, revenge porn websites and things like that. A lot of these companies don't care about where the data comes from as long as that there's data being used and it enhances the images that they're they're trying to create. And so there's also no way for anyone to opt out of those data sets. It's hard to know whether your information's in those data sets. Chances are they are. If you have any photos uploaded to Instagram that are your own on Facebook, you've shared your opinions on Twitter or whatever, there's very there's a very high chance that your information has been used to some extent in training these models. And so again, there's just no way to know whether your information's there. And it's interesting to sort of look at this newer iteration of AI and notice a lot of the same problems and also oftentimes the same victims in these situations. Again, it's, you know, it's interesting how technology just sort of really underscores the inequities that have already existed. And there's so much talk about how technology makes things more accessible and whatever. And to an extent it does, but that benefit often isn't appreciated as much or enjoyed as much by people who also experience the greatest harm or the greatest potential harm from that technology too. And you mention algorithmic auditing in your book. So I'm going to have you explain what that is. But before you do, 
how do we even implement it when these algorithms are so opaque? And like you said, we can't even prove or it's so difficult to prove the data they're using, how it was obtained, whether it was non-consensual. So how can we dissect algorithmic auditing? Yeah. And so algorithmic auditing is actually a space where I feel private actors, like other companies, other individuals have kind of tried to fill in the gap. You know, oftentimes so many of these harms are being perpetuated by companies, by developers, by grifters. And so, you know, for example, what I think of is there's a tool that basically allows artists to drag and drop their own artwork onto it. And the tool will let the artist know whether their work has been used in different, um, used to train different models, for example. And so that's actually an algorithm itself. It's an algorithm that's sifting through the training data sets and determining whether someone's work has been used in that way. Uh, sometimes it's really explicit. The end of last year, Wet Lensa was a really popular application when people were sort of uploading their, their selfies and having Lensa create those, the, the avatar, you know, magic avatar um, profile photos for them in different styles. Artists have found, you know, their own signatures in the corners of profile photos because their artwork was used to train that style. And so there are really obvious instances like that, but auditing more broadly is looking at really in terms of bias data, right? And the difficulty of auditing is that there needs to be, at least right now, under the current framework, companies need to be open to being audited because there's no auditing requirements, right? The government hasn't come in and said, you know, if you're going to use an AI tool that makes decisions about the public, we're going to require you to be audited by an independent entity to determine whether your data set is representative. Is there overrepresentation of certain groups of people? Where are you getting this data from? Are you also removing data when people have asked you to? Things like that. That's where auditors can kind of come in and do that. But without a requirement, it's really on the companies themselves to say, hey, come audit us. We want to make sure that our product or our service is more fair and more objective or whatever. And certainly the metas and the Amazons of the world are not doing that. It serves them to remain opaque. And so that's sort of the tricky thing. And, and that's oftentimes a lot of my own criticisms of the speed at which we're regulating the space is... There's a lot of sort of, you know, suggestions, guidelines, you know, please do this. We really encourage companies to adopt these measures, but without enforceability, without some sort of consequence uh, for not complying, uh, these companies, I don't think will change because we've seen time, time again, even when the public is unhappy with the way that things are being done, there isn't much movement to actually, you know, change in a legitimate and, and authentic way. So what do you think are the most pressing and legal issues that need to be addressed? Should it be copyright law? Should it be some other standards or requirements or regulation? I know you mentioned in your book how these tech companies and developers don't want to be regulated. It's in their best interest to remain under the radar. So what can we do realistically or where can we start to hold these companies to higher standards and accountability? Yeah, ooh, that's a tricky question. There's there's a lot of concerns, and so it's hard to pick or rank them. You know, I will say, though, you know, as someone who, who has written a great deal about sort of the more recent copyright concerns relating to AI, I think there's been a lot of tension on that. And I think 
there's a lot of valid reasons for why we should be worried about that. But certainly, I think relative to the biases and the harms that result from like criminal legal system algorithms, I think that's a much more serious and maybe more dangerous concern. Certainly, I think artists should at the very least be compensated when their work is being taken. And I think ideally should be able to provide consent on whether their work is being used in this way or not. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, you know, I think the root of what I am most worried about is how people's lives are at stake due to this technology. Because for so long, a lot of the most famous and well-known developers of technology and tech companies, they've kind of followed this rule of, you know, move fast and break things, right? And that might be fine if all you're losing is investor money or whatever, but it's a lot different when what you end up breaking are things like people's livelihood and people's freedom to move about in their communities and people to and an ability to, you know, cross state lines to get the health care that they deserve. I think that becomes a lot more um I don't think the same philosophy can apply there. And I think we continue to try to justify that, right? I think some of the sluggishness in Congress's willingness to regulate AI um, in particular is because they want to remain competitive compared to other countries. You know, I think of China, India, a lot of their AI is developing at, at pretty break, breakneck speeds. And America wants to remain competitive. But I think it's at the cost of people's well-being. And again, when people are being wrongfully arrested and having interactions with law enforcement as a result of this technology getting it wrong, I think that raises a lot of alarms. And then also, I think there's been too much focus on sort of this long-termism, right? The sort of, when when we have people like Sam Altman speaking to Congress and saying, um, you know, we need to be worried about general artificial intelligence and robots taking over. And there's countless references to Skynet and things like that. Those aren't things I think a lot of people who are actually aware of, you know, who, who actually pay attention to these issues. I don't think those are the things that they're actually worried about because those are, again, I think, you know, you're looking at real harms and potential harms in the future, right? I think it distracts from the things that are happening today. When we talk about, you know, robots taking over and, and things like that, we're not talking about the way AI is being used to surveil people. We're not talking about the way... AI has put people in prison for longer maybe than they deserve. Those are very real harms and we aren't addressing them because we're getting lost in the narrative of that that is being peddled by a lot of these, you know, big companies. And they're also the very same companies that are creating the problems that they are claiming that need to be addressed. But that's sort of where I'm coming at from here. I, I realize I've kind of rambled a little bit. <laughs> no, I was just thinking because you mentioned open, well, Sam Altman, and I was thinking about how biases are being perpetuated. And I wanted to confirm, but I think that the entire executive board is male. So I just wanted to make another reference of, you know, of course, open AI is innovative, it's creative, it's unique, it's pushing the frontier forward. But how much more, like, how forward can it truly move it if it's going to limit itself? And so that's where my head went. But in that vein, to ask my final question, I was curious to hear what else we should be aware of, whether it's a specific example of how biases are being perpetuated historically, 
if it's more of a structure that we should be aware of and patterns we should keep an eye out to mitigate the continuation of this or any last minute notes that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, I would say, you know, I'm thinking back to what you were saying about how the board is completely male dominated. And yeah, I think at a very basic level, representation is important, not just in the, you know, we, we talked a great deal about how representation is important in the data, but in the real world too, representation is so important and women are consistently left out of these discussions People of color are often, you know, especially black and brown people are, are not included um, in part of the workforces that develop this technology. We've seen how products fail them time and time again. And they're also the group that is the least represented in, in the development of this of, of these products. And I think too, something a concept that I get at in the book is this idea of sort of private lawmakers, right? Or or that these companies create tools um, and systems that affect us, like public you know, people in the public, but we have no say in how they operate, right? We are not a part of that conversation, even though we are ultimately the people who are being the most impacted by this technology. And so I think finding ways to involve ourselves and open up, you know, there's so much we don't and can't know because of the current state of affairs. And it's important to dig deeper and to push for regulations that make this a more transparent process. But again, I think, you know, I think if there's one thing I can leave everyone with, it's that whenever there's a new big development, whether it's Robert Moses developing new urban wonders and, and new landmarks for New York City, or new technologies that are sort of introducing new flashy ways to do things, these new developments almost always highlight, you know, pre-existing inequities in our society. And if we don't stop and think about them in a very sort of earnest and deliberate way, we will get caught up in the excitement of these new things, how great they might work for us or might work really well for certain people that we don't, we don't stop to, you know, critique the way that it could be working better for everyone. And I think at the end of the day, that's what technology should be doing, right? I think advancements are only worthwhile if they can reduce harms and improve things for as many people as possible. And certainly with a lot of the most well-known examples that we have and, and a lot of the examples I've talked through in my book, that's not the case. Um, a lot of technology is sometimes very deliberately meant to harm certain groups of people and oftentimes unintentionally benefiting just a select few. So that's what I will leave everyone with today. Patrick, thank you so much for your time and your insights with us. I so appreciate you being here. And thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. I, this has been such a fun conversation and I really appreciate being here today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. Tune in again for our next episode with guest speaker Domini Satija, who will be discussing algorithmic accountability and what that even means. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and have a great day.